You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Tuesday, the 10th of December, 2019. Thank you all for tuning in. We did it. Another show. <laughs> Finally on schedule, just about. Um, there was no time necessarily set up for tonight, but I was hoping that uh, another show would come out tonight. And uh, because of the lateness of tonight's program, it will be definitely kept to about an hour. And... Tonight's show won't be quite dealing with current events or anything like that. It'll be uh, a topic I've been wanting to cover for years now and uh, pretty much dealing with a a subject I came out of. I just want to give some context. um, And for those of you joining, perhaps, or listening or whatever, uh, we're going to be looking at going through Genesis chapter 6. And I'm going to explain in a second why why we would do that, because that might seem like a strange thing to do on a program and also going to look at um who are the who are the giants in genesis chapter 6 and also uh the sons of god why cover this topic at all why even um if you're a new christian you might look at it and going i have no idea what that is talking about um there is a bit of debate that's been going on with this passage for quite some time uh you could argue going back you know millennia really um there's much confusion it kind of feels a lot of internet conspiracy theories and i'm hoping by god's grace that uh, what will be shared tonight will help you i suppose for want of a better way to say it, how what the Bible is actually saying in this place. And I really help you to understand the book of Genesis in general. This is not necessarily... You don't want to be someone who's majoring on the minors and major, minoring on the majors. This program, by its very beginning and everything else, is, is very much a kind of something supplementary. And Hopefully it will help. It's a very, very popular view, which I'm going to be dealing with today in regards to Genesis chapter 6, which talks about sons of God and the daughters of men, and there's some offspring, and it talks about giants, or some modern translations say Nephilim, because Nephilim is literally the, the transliteration of the Hebrew word, the fallen ones, but, you know, giants they were large men huge five cubits high as big as goliath massive so uh, a lot of confusion especially in more charismatic churches but i'll be honest right there are a lot of and and the view i'm particularly going to be looking at tonight is sometimes called the angel view But that is, just to state out front, that is not the view I hold anymore. For years, as a a new believer, for the first, I don't know, five years being saved, I held to the angel view, the the view I'm going to be looking at tonight, and I no longer hold to that view, and I no longer think that that view, 
I didn't think about it for years, if I'm being honest. But the more and more I looked at that passage, the more and more I came to the conviction that it just didn't line up with what was said here. Now, just to state out front, there are two views. I'm not a big fan of the whole Sethite view that I, I, I'm a fan of the view, but it's just the title and it can be misleading. Um, and look, if this if you are kind of somebody who is holding to the angel view, very vehemently, as I once did, possibly, what, seven, eight years ago, whenever it was, all I'll say is just please hear me out as I go through these things. But there are there are good people on either side. This is not something to divide over. This isn't... Potentially, potentially, at best, if somebody holds the angel view, it's potentially distracting, and it could potentially take you off in dangerous areas. And we'll possibly look at that later on. Um, but at the same time, it may go no further than this. My view, quote-unquote, with the angel view, that my prior belief, this is years ago and I want to hell this, um, that the angels were, you know, the sons of God because of the references to Job 1.6 and... Um, what Job two one, Job thirty eight seven, because it's the same Benai Elohim term. Okay, um, one of the things I remember years ago, I was having a kind of a chat with a buddy of mine about this, and I was saying to him, you know, I, I haven't really thought about this too much, but I remember him saying that none of the reformed commentaries held to the quote unquote angel view. And it doesn't mean necessarily that means it's wrong or that means it's... However, when you are... When you're kind of in a minority in a segment of the church that's generally filled with so many godly teachers and you're the only person with a specific view, you might want to reevaluate that view again. And look, if you're right, then Lord willing, you'll gain more confidence in your view. But again, this is not something to divide over. This is potentially a non-issue for some people. There's some godly people I listen to, hold to this. And there are also some extremely dangerous people who are peddling things who hold to this view. And it's more to that second group that I'm appealing. And there are some amazing godly teachers that hold to this. And do you know what? You disagree with me at the end of this. Your life moves on and fine. Um, okay, so let's look at Genesis chapter 6 without, without further delay because people kind of go to one or two extremes of this. They either think, well, you're crazy if you hold either view or um, they're kind of a bit dismissive of either side and I don't want to do that because I know for a fact there can be godly people who hold to the angel view Okay, Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass when, the, when, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also after. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. 
These were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of his and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we could go on, but that's the major, especially the first four verses, where a lot of this um, division and confusion uh, kind of comes in. I hope I'm not peeking there on the audio. Now, and if there's any problems, please let me know um, on the live stream. And if you've got any questions, this might go to two programs, by the way, because I, I do have a lot of material, but um, I will try to keep it to one. We'll see how things go. Now, so it says in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6, Now it came to pass, and men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, this is something that only really clicked with me, I don't know why, a few weeks ago. When is this referring to? What's the context of Genesis chapter 6? It's Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, it gives a massive genealogy that begins, uh, Genesis chapter 5, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam, and the day that God created man, he created him in the likeness of God, and then um, gives the line of Seth, and lots of descendants. This is when men began to multiply in the face of the earth. Now, just for context's sake, and some of the straw men that have been kind of uh, mentioned in regards to this verse on the angel's side, this isn't just referring to men. This is mankind in general, okay? This is talking about humanity, okay? So when man began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, this is just they had offspring, okay? This is kind of the language of this section. Verse 2. So, now, before we get into this, your view of covenants, covenant theology and things like that, will be massively, will play a massive role in how you're going to view Genesis chapter 6. Now, you might have the same covenant theology view that I have, i.e., that as soon as Adam fell, Adam sinned, and the covenant of grace really goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And the, the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. Going right back to that gospel, first gospel promise. And the, the covenant of grace really beginning there. That now mankind would only have a relationship by covenantal grace with God. From that point onwards. No longer could it be by means of obedience, as was seen prior to the fall in the Garden of Eden, what is often called the covenant of works, okay? So, and then what you have, you have, you have two children, you have Cain and Abel, and this is at the start of Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, you have Cain who is evil, Unconverted. We're not, we know this as well from 1 John chapter 3. And Abel was godly. And Abel in various parts of the scriptures is called righteous. The way of Cain is reference to rebellion and sin and so on and so forth. So what do you have? Cain, wicked Cain, who was unconverted, didn't love God, killed his brother because his works were evil. Again, 
How do I know this from Gen, uh, 1 John chapter 3? I think it's in verse, what, 10 to 12 or around, that, around there. Now, when you come then to the end of Genesis chapter 4, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and, name, and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. So, the... God continues his covenant through family lines. The promise to be a God unto you and unto your children. Again, it's the view of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's the view of the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, the Reformation, creeds across the board. Also prior to that as well. It's nothing new. This is not just a view of the Roman Catholic Church or anything else like that. This is the view of Protestantism, unless you want to rope in Anabaptists who are denying all sorts of things. Um, and I suppose when you bring in the Anabaptists, which Anabaptists? Because they disagreed among themselves. Often they rejected the gospel. Some of them rejected the Trinity, but that's another issue. Okay, so um, you have the... So when you're coming to Genesis chapter 6, you're not coming in a complete vacuum. It's not just, oh, nothing happened before then. You are in a context of men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Here's the context. So you need some proof, something concrete, to tell you that who is being talked about here, the sons of God and the daughters of men, is talking about somebody other than humanity. Again, the angel view, for those not aware of it, the angel view is this, that the sons of God is referring to angels. Very popular view, especially online. Um, you'll get people who are very zealous about this view. May not, may not, Some of them may not even... I knew people who, ne who were very, very zealous about this view and um, wouldn't darken the door of a church. Never went to church. Something bad happened years ago and they, they refused to go, but they at the same time would go around to conferences and teach other people. Um, <clears throat> now, if you do hold to this view, I pray that you'll see that it is not nowhere near as important as justification by faith alone. And that is the thing that we ought to be focusing on, on evangelism and the Great Commission and everything else and so on. Now, or if you come to Genesis chapter 6 and kind of... um dispensationalism, which is very segmented, and, it, it, you know, like, you get the age of innocence up until uh, the fall of man, and then you get another age, and time is broken up into segments, so they're really treated like isolated incidents, fairly arbitrarily, if you ask me, having been a former dispensationalist for a while. If you come to this in its context, it's very hard to come up with the view that these two groups, the sons of God and daughters of men or anything else but human beings, but we'll get into this more in detail. So who are these two groups? Should we expect angels? And there's also another view, just to mention, kings. Kings is another view that these are mighty kings. Um... I'm not going to split hairs if somebody has that view, but um, I, I don't think it, it is strong as this one, but I digress. Um, 
nothing in this indicates that it's anything but men. Now, the term, the argument is this for the angel view. Again, I don't hold to the angel view, but the arg argument is this. The Hebrew for the term, the sons of God. Benai Elohim. Benai Elohim. Um, Benai, from Ben, is son, or sons. Elohim is referring to God. Now, we have to be careful with translations of Elohim because sometimes it's referring to judges, sometimes it's referring to pagan gods. It depends on the context. But, um, but there's also a definite article here. Benai ha Elohim. Benai ha Elohim. So, The the term Benai Elohim is used in other places. Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Job 38.7. Save you time. Pretty much everybody agrees that the, the references in Job are referring to angels. So this is where this view kind of comes from a lot of the time. Um, so because it's, if you just take the Hebrew and you say, well, where else is this exact phrase used? In the Bible, and you did not, and that was your only criteria. Well, you come up with the angel view. That is not a good way to go about. It's not a good thing. Like I mean, concordances. It's not a good idea. Concordances can be great and handy and everything else like that, but you just don't want to kind of go with any doctrine and just kind of go well look up the word sovereign and, oh, well, the Bible doesn't use the word sovereign very much, does it? So, therefore, no, no, what's the concept behind the word? Um, is that the only place where the term sons of God is used? No. And they've set up a kind of criteria of this Hebrew term has to be used in order to Try and understand what it means. Eh, that's not a good way to go about hermeneutics and exegesis. Um, so, yeah, thank you, everybody, for letting me know about the audio. <laughs> it's just, um, I've been tweaking around with the sync, so I don't know. The, the sync with the audio and the video might still be a bit out of sync. Hopefully it's okay. I'm tweaking about it'll probably get better with show with every show. So greetings, everybody in the chat, and uh, thank you so much for uh, your help. Now, so anyway, Benoel Elohim, sons of God, is, if we, let's consider for a second, the, the Greek Septuagint. The Greek Septuagint is a third, B, from 300 BC, roughly around 300 BC, a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Now, whatever form the Septuagint takes anymore, because it can be big, sections can be missing and things like that. Be careful with the Septuagint. But look, apart from that, it is translated huyoi to theo, which is um, sons of God, okay? This term is used in the New Testament. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. 
that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Trying to get the exact Greek in front of me here. Is it the exact phrase? Yeah. So, sons of God can be referring to, also you got John 1.12. Now, somebody might quibble that John 1.12 is really children of God, tatekna, rather than sons, or it's the same idea. Ben is really, it can be offspring, it can be, let's just get a, let's get a dictionary definition in front of me here. Ben, which is the beginning of Benai Ha'elohim. And uh, if anybody actually is much better Hebrew than me, and I'm butchering the pronunciation, forgive me. Uh, it can be referring to a son. It can be referring to a grandson. It can be referring to a subject, uh, age. Uh, it can also be referring to... Where are we getting there? Okay, I'll, I'll give you a few ways it's translated. For example, in the authorized version, the King James. It's translated a couple of thousand times, son. It's translated children a number of times. This is the, the Hebrew term, ben. You know, we get the word Benjamin. You know, the name Benjamin. You get, so Ben, B-E-N. We have the name in English. Um, it can be, it's been translated old, first, man, young. A lot of it depends on the context. A lot of it depends too on uh, the tense and all that, right? But it can have a range of meaning, children. So it's really talking about offspring of God. Now, the question you have to ask yourself then is, is it talking about physical offspring of God or spiritual offspring of God? So a lot of it comes down to context. It's very dangerous to go through, ah, oh, you see, here's this exact phrase and here's another place. That can help you, and I'm not saying you ignore that, but Benoyal Ha'alahim is not or let's just take the translation of that, sons of God, is not only just referring to angels. It includes angels, and it may be angels, but it has to be determined by the context. I'll give you an example. Like, it can be any direct creation from God. There's a verse in Luke 3, verse 38. Big long section where where Luke is writing this big long genealogy, ending with Adam, and says the Son of God. And this is a this is a genealogy, a physical genealogy going right right down, ending with Son of God. Now the word Son is provided. Simply because of the way Greek is lined up. It's a big long section of of Adam, of God. But the way you translate it, you you would translate it that way. Apologies, I'm getting kind of technical, but it's kind of it's kind of necessary because there's a lot of mythology and there's a lot of silliness around this topic. Um now. So you're really talking about, in some sense, there's an offspring, a son, a child of God, or a ruler, or a judge, and it's pretty clear from the context. The, the term Elohim, by the way, literally, kind, literally means mighty one. If you go to Psalm 82, um, 
God sits among the gods. And the council, some, some translations say the divine council or whatever, but the sense of it is this, the mighty one is sitting among the mighty ones. Or, Elohim can also be referring to judges, similar idea, by the way, because judges derive their power from Elohim on high, and they are Elohim, small g, G-O-D-S. Um, so, God sits among the, the mighty ones. The mighty one sits among the mighty ones. This is Psalm 82, verse 1. And judges, he is the mighty judge. He is the judge of judges who judges among the judges. Again, reference Psalm 82. I think people have this flatline view of what Elohim is, what this term, Benoi Ha-Elohim, means. They take this little block sentence where each part of that phrase means something. Not something complicated, but it's been turned into something complicated. Um, so with all that said, and apologies if I've lost anybody. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you. You might have to stop and go back again. This is after years and years and years of looking at it. It's not excessively, a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, now, look, all parts of the Word of God are important. And if a weird interpretation in any part of the Scripture, whether it's the book of Revelation, the book of Zechariah, where often the, the genre is ignored of those two books, apocalyptic literature or whatever, it can lead you in the wrong direction. And that can hurt God's people. So, Lord willing, this will help. Um, so, we're still in verse 2, by the way. So, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, Genesis 6, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. So, these two groups, and I think from the context, it's very, very clear that this is referring to, going right down, a godly seed. Those are of God. And again, this term in Greek, the Greek equivalent, is used in the New Testament as well, of those who are spiritual sons of God. Those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. And what have they been doing? I suppose there's a slight poetic language about this. Um, the daughters of men. Mixed marriages. And they took why? And they were beautiful. What was the reason for this marriage? Was it because of, for godly reasons? No, because of physical beauty. And they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And they so it's never a good idea to marry somebody because of beauty. And they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Now, some people will say, some people have said over the years that this term, they took wives of all that they chose, it sounds like they forced them a little bit. It sounds like there wasn't much of a choice in the matter. That is reading into the language completely. This is a very common term. Uh, the, the Hebrew for take, lakak, can in, in certain contexts be translated, and it is Genesis 19.4, translated marry. 
It's normal. My point is this. It's normal language. For centuries, they say, I will take a wife. It doesn't mean you go into the village and steal some. I'm not trying to be facetious or anything like that, but I've heard this said time and time again. And it's, it's reading into and it's forcing meaning into the language. It's just simply not there. Of all that they chose. This is wicked and wrong right off the bat because we're godly. Those who are in Christ are supposed to marry those who are in Christ. We're not allowed to mix marry. And you know, by the way, mixed marriages, this is not talking about, this is nothing to do with race whatsoever. Skin color, nothing to do with skin color. We're all of one blood. Every nation under earth is of one blood. This is nothing to do with skin color. This is everything to do with the God you are bowing before. And if you're a Christian, it is evil, wicked, and wrong to marry somebody knowingly, you may not know it at the time, that is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Because we don't think that that's evil and wrong anymore. It's almost like a kind of a question, can I marry this unbeliever? Question is, why would you want to marry this unbeliever who serves another God? Now, if you are already married to somebody, Maybe you got saved during your marriage. Praise the Lord. And if that person stays with you, praise the Lord. Perhaps that person will get saved through you. Perhaps that person might abandon you or leave you. Well, in such cases, you are not under bondage in such cases. The Bible is very clear about this. There's two cases. I don't want to get into divorce and remarriage or anything like that. But... So, marrying somebody who's not a believer is wicked and wrong, but I'm sorry, but our our church culture today doesn't think this is a big deal. It was wrong back then, it's wrong today. It led people like Solomon, who had many strange wives after false gods, godly Solomon who wrote parts of scripture. Don't get too much off on a tangent here. But, um... Anyway, so, so this is talking about marriage. This is talking about taking wives. It's pretty normal language. It is pretty normal language. There's nothing to indicate anything else. Oh, but the book of Enoch, we'll get into that later. I mean, the book of Enoch, that's generally ascribed, Enoch never wrote it, by the way. It's a second century BC um, writing, intertestamental writing. I'm not saying don't read it but also realize that there's such thing as Jewish fables. And there will be things from Greek mythology and Jewish mythology and apocalyptic literature that ex- existed between the book of Malachi and the writings of the first, the first New Testament writings that were very apocalyptic and there was a lot of different things around and they had, look, they had all sorts of strange views some of them have allegorical views of Genesis or whatever else, it doesn't mean they were right. Just because a view was in the first century, just because Justin Martyr, whoever else had a view, doesn't mean it was right. Now, before I go on, it's been claimed that the, the, the Septuagint upholds the angel view. It doesn't. The Septuagint actually, if anything, debunks this, at least 
the edition that we have today and the one that most people believe is reliable. Sons of God is translated sons of God. In Job, those three references, at least definitely at least two of them, is translated angeloi, angels. The, the translators of Septuagint translated Benai Elohim, angeloi, angels, to Theu. That's what it was. Yeah. So, if anything, I've heard this claim time and time again. Oh, the, the Septuagint. I have not had time to check out the other references. And look, there were there was a lot of f- fables from the early first few centuries. Anybody who reads intertestamental literature or whatever, you're going to see bits of things not necessarily true. Scripture needs to be our final authority, and it needs to come from Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean you ignore the things. It doesn't mean you you you, you take it on board and you kind of go, "That's what that that was early Jewish view or whatever." I'm not saying that nobody in the early church held to the angel view at all. I'm not embarrassed by it. If the Word of God teaches the angel view, fine, I'll go with it. But I'm just not convinced of it. And it can take you, and we'll talk a little bit later, where it can take you, sadly, um, in kind of a strange direction. Now, let's get on. Sorry, I'm... Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Verse 3 is basically saying, okay, prior to the fall, or not prior to the, to the flood, Adam, Noah, they lived hundreds and hundreds of years. Jacob, we know at the end of Genesis 50, says, few and evil have the days of my life been. Man's life has been cut down in what, about 120 years, as it says there. That's all that verse really means. Um, <clears throat> there are giants in the earth in those days, and here's where a lot of the um, uh, the controversy comes. They were giants in the earth in those days, and also afterward, and the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they brought children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So the giants, or the Nephilim, as a lot of... I think the NASB, don't know about the ESV, but a lot of modern translations have the word Nephilim, and not the word giants. The word giants, the Septuagint has the word gigantes. These were huge, huge men. One thing, if the flood was to deal with the giant problem, why were they, it didn't deal with it. There were giants in the world in those days and also after that. There was giants later on. Goliath. Some of them were five foot high. Some of the Egyptians were like that. Um, but you say, well, why was a union? This is the question. This is the question I used to have. Why was there a union of godly and ungodly? Why was there a union of those who followed God and those who did not? Why did it produce giant offspring? Again, I think we're reading too much into the text, and and this keeps happening over and over again. What are we told by the text in verse 4? There were giants in the earth. There were giants in the earth. It doesn't say that every single person besides Noah and his family were giants. Can we just agree with that? There were giants. They were there. That's all we're told by the text. In those days and also afterward, when the sons of God gives you the time, 
when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, they bore children of them. They were mighty men. Mighty men, um, Hagiborim. Um, also can be translated, warrior. They were warriors of old, men of renown. I struggled with this for years. I changed my view in it, and I, I didn't know what to make of this. Can I be honest? I got to say, oh, how are they big? And how does that make sense? I was constantly eisegeting the text. I was reading into the text. Um, how do I... This is my explanation of justice, okay? They were warriors. They were strong. They were mighty. Again, you see Goliath as one example. You see these big Anakim. It was at um, Numbers 33. It also refers to Nephilim. Uh, Numbers 33, is it verse 13? Yeah, Numbers uh, 1333, sorry. 1333, and also you can see references, 1 Chronicles 11, 23, and 26, and there's lots of different examples later on. By the way, there's no indication whatsoever that they are anything but human. Oh, but they had six fingers, and they were five cubits high. That doesn't sound very human. The fall, genetic deformities there was again nothing to indicate that these were non-human nothing nothing whatsoever they were evil now they were mighty men these were famous these were conquerors and there was there was particularly significant to be singled up by the word of God for this reason. They were big, and men's hearts were evil. And it talks about here in verse 5 of chapter 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only even continually. By the way, that has not changed. The reason there's no flood today is because God promised not to do it again. That's later in Genesis. Um... We're sorry that he made man. Um, Noah found grace. It says in verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So people are evil. What, what do you get? Politicians, you get, you get them into power and they have the opportunity to abuse that power. When you're in the ancient world, who are the people with the greatest influence in a society that's filled with violence because of sin and everything else like that and this chaos around the place? The biggest guy, the strong warrior, the champion, as again, I'm using Goliath as an example, will dominate. And there'll be men of old, men of renown. And they will conquer. And if those... And they will be the people who will be in charge. It, again, it, do, it doesn't say anything that these warriors, these mighty men, were in any way the only people left upon the face of the earth. You're reading into it at that point. Um, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. God said at the end of G Genesis chapter 8, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Why? Because he's merciful. God will not curse the earth again for man's sake because he is merciful. 
It's the promise of grace. There's, you know, the, the view is this that, well, this is like some kind of a corruption of the DNA of mankind, so they have to be wiped out. That doesn't make any sense. If somebody has corrupt DNA, you're not going to get judged by God for your cancer. You can't repent of cancer. You can't repent of a lack of a limb or an extra finger on your hand. That, that's been reported, by the way. There are people around the world who have an extra digit on their hand. That, this is... Um, you can't repent of being supremely tall, but you do have to repent of breaking God's law. It's a rebellion against God. So, again, these were powerful. They had the power and the evil intents, and they conquered, they ruled, and these were the mighty men, men, uh, the mighty men of old. And that's all really that there is to the verse. Now, there was a few other things of in Mark 12, 25. It talks about how the angels are not they don't, they don't marry or are not given in marriage. So just look at that. Now, I know what the counter-argument will be. It will be that, well, they weren't supposed to sin in rebellion and they weren't supposed to fall, and they did. Let's just talk about this for a second, because this is how I would have responded to this verse years ago. I mean, a long time ago now at this point. But Mark 12 and 25 says this, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And this is referring to, you know, marriage. People won't get married in heaven. There's no inclination. There's no desire towards it whatsoever. There's nothing to indicate that there will be this desire. In heaven. Actually, we're given the exact opposite. But I didn't want to bring that argument up first, but it is compelling and um, it should be noted and um, thought upon for those who hold to the view. And again, it very much depends on your view of covenant theology. Now, before I go on to anything else, and before I look at anything else for the end of the program, I just want to have a quick look through uh, the chat, see if there's any um, any questions, and we'll just look at that. Um, if a person hears the gospel, but not how to get saved part, and is stuck in a willful sin because of that, that person is in danger of being turned over to a reprobate mind. Okay, not a, um, somebody in the chat um, asking this question, what if a person hears the gospel, but not how to get saved part? Well, but then that's not the gospel. Um, that's what I would say. But let's just go with this. And is stuck in willful sin because of that the person is in danger of being turned over to a reprobate mind. Um, we are by nature children of wrath. Reprobate means rejected. You know, it's, it's terms of, you know, reprobate silver. And we are by nature children of wrath. We, we naturally follow after the devil. This is just who we are. If you look at the start of a... Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 
even if the person, even if I'll go even further than the question this person has uh, has posed, if if someone has never heard the gospel, I, I suppose it's in reference to Genesis chapter six. If somebody's never heard the gospel, but all they have is the light of creation, there are they're condemned. This is why we send missionaries everywhere. This is why we try to share the gospel with everyone. Why? We've been created in God's image. The law of God's written in our heart. Now, we hold the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. We suppress that. We, we don't like it. The person who's never heard the gospel hates God. And the person who's never heard the gospel can see God in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. We see at the beginning of Psalm 19. And you look at Romans chapter 1, verses, uh, was it 18 onwards? This, let's call them theology, natural revelation. All they know that there's, not even just that there's a God. Not that. That's what the Bible says. The heavens declare the glory of, excuse me, God. God himself. So they are without excuse. Now, creation does not reveal how to get saved. And the gospel commands all men everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Noah trusted in Christ. Moses trusted in Christ. How do I know this? Go through Hebrews chapter 11. <coughs> able to believe in Christ. And there's no other mediator, there's no other way that anybody can be saved. The blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament was never enough to save sinners. And uh, thank you for that question. Um, if you had a question, I'm going to try and keep it to topic. So um, I'll, I'll do my best to answer whatever I can. Um, so, and I'll try and keep it to Genesis chapter six, like good questions. And, I, um, and actually I, a brother in the Lord is answering the questions. So that's great. And, uh, but if you want to email me, we get a films at gmail.com, either perhaps there'll be a program or perhaps, perhaps I'll be able to answer in the email, whatever the case may be. One thing I will say to people is. I hope by God's grace over these, um, this program started to, to 2011 and I want to, I want people that I shouldn't be the first person you come to go to a minister, go to a local church, go to some church where they preach the gospel and get advice from them. That, that's always going to be the best. Perhaps you can't do that or the advice you give hasn't been very great. Films at gmail.com. You can email me, you can ask me away, and I won't reveal your name unless I get explicit permission from you that I can. I don't... <laughs> the reason I don't like it is if, if, if it's something really sensitive, like somebody's going through marital difficulties and it's like, it's Tom from London, and, you know, just in case... Um... The exact details can be, you know what I mean, you know. So I, I hope people feel they can ask and that it won't go any further. But at the same time, I'm not the person to go to. A local minister 
hopefully you're a member of a local church. A minister should make himself available, not even a necessary minister, maybe a ruling elder, and um, hopefully help you through whatever people are going through. Okay. And thank you so much, everybody, for gracious and wonderful, encouraging comments. Right, let's wrap this up. It looks like, you know, I'm shocked. I'm, I got through this in 50 minutes. I was kind of really surprised about that. Um, Maybe I went through too fast. Who knows? We'll find out. <laughs> uh, I do plan on next week, unless something else comes up, on doing some kind of refutation of... There's two major people I think of. There's either Chuck Missler or Dr. Michael Hauser. Um, I'm not saying that either of these two men aren't. They seem to be genuine believers, but I don't recommend them as Bible teachers. I think Chuck Missler passed away a couple of years ago. And if I'm not mistaken, I haven't... Last time I, I saw a Chuck Missler video was like probably 2012 or something like that. And... And Michael Heiser, I know that he promotes this, and I know he promotes some kind of other strange views in relation to this. So um, if nothing else comes up in this issue, I will cover that um, next week. Now, um, let's look at the positive of the story. Let's wrap up with something positive. You know, look, there's a, there's a, there's a point to this story story. There's a point to this passage of scripture. Why is Genesis chapter 6 there? Is it like to go, who are these sons of God? Who are the... Is that really going to edify and build up? Or is it about God's mercy? Primarily, of course, it talks about the judgment of God and the wrath of God, and that has to be there, and but is it about primarily the mercy of God? Verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. And again, unless, unless you have a covenantal view of these things, oh, you see, genealogy, physical, and no. Again, I will be God unto you and to your children. This won't make a lot of sense unless you include children in the covenant. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Now, he was perfect in his generations. Just like Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Referring to Abraham, Genesis 15, verse 6. Justification by faith alone, apart from the deeds of the law. Same gospel, same way of getting saved, Old and New Testament, post-fall, after the fall of man, of man. And Noah walked with God. This is not how he got saved. This is what a saved person looks like. Noah walked with God. God do you, how do you know if God has been merciful to you? One of the evidences, now, primarily that you are trusting in him, those who trust in him. God has been merciful to. But what does that look like? How do you know that you trust him? You walk with him. You walk with him. You follow his law. Exodus 20, verse 6, right in the middle of the Decalogue, it says, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Love 
is summarized in the law. Love of God, the first four commandments, love of neighbor, commandments five through to ten. And we all fail, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God, Noah trusted God. Noah was regenerated by the Spirit of God, and he trusted God, and he and his family were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you also have to be very, very careful, especially for those people who be more Calvinistic, some of them even Reformed, who have the angel view of this text. I don't know how many. I don't know how many. Um, in, on the, in the Reformed camp. But it's important that you see that the issue of the flood is in reference to sin, is in response to sin, not into some strange creatures that are coming along. There's no indication of that whatsoever. None. None. But how are these Goliath and you see the Egyptians and all these other people who are dominate because they were big and because they were evil, they dominated. That's it. Oh, but it seems too simple, doesn't it? You know, and I wrestled with this and it was like the, the Geneva translation, uh, 1599, but the footnote. For giants, and they just put a little footnote at the bottom of the page and said tyrants. Ah, that struck with me. I was like, huh. Yeah, the, the etymology means fallen ones. Um, they said, well, but their one of their parents was godly. Yeah, but what do you see when when it, when godly people marry ungodly people? Do you expect God to best that? What happens? Not only does it lead the godly people away from God, your, your children will also be led away from God. No, God can be merciful. God can show kindness in the midst of your errors and, and failures. But generally speaking, what is generally seen? Rebellion, apostasy, and etc. and so on. Don't ever be tempted to marry someone who doesn't love God. I'll just leave you with this, right? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because I think people don't realize how evil this was. And it's not just one place. And it's not just talking about mar not marrying foreigners. The, the foreigners in Genesis chapter 6. They, well, there wasn't. They all spoke one language up until Genesis 11. But the... The groups in Genesis chapter 6, prior to the, the splitting of the languages and all that, were believers and unbelievers. That, that's, that, were, that was the line. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. says this you shall not make 
after uh, mm, I'll read from verse 3 nor shall you make marriages with them you shall not give your daughter to their son nor take their daughter for your son so it says this is talking about the the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and Hittites and the Jebusites the, the, the people of God people of Israel are coming in to the promised land about to cross over the Jordan and they are told do you see all those wicked people do not make a covenant with them do not dare be tempted to mix marry with them why and it tells us in verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 7 for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods so the anger of the Lord be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. There's often kind of a mocking of this view. It's like, oh, well, you know, they didn't keep separation, so therefore they had hideous children or something like that. No. Nothing about that whatsoever. God's... Ju it was particularly... Man Whenever God judges a place, like Sodom and Gomorrah, the only... Homosexuality wasn't the only sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. Also, if I know other parts of Scripture, the pride was as well. This was just, here's an example of how wicked they are. Makes marriages is wicked. Don't ever contemplate it. Don't ever think about it. And look, if you've already entered into that marriage, honor that marriage. You are now married to that person. But the warning is there. Why does God not want you to marry that unbeliever? For they will turn your sons, your sons, your children, away from following me. That's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 6. These children of this godly line and ungodly line coming together, the children will turn away from following, they've turned away from following God, and served other gods. If there's any questions and got through that quickly, more quickly than I actually thought. Any questions at gmail.com. Uh, gmail Hope to be back again next Tuesday. Maybe with a critique of somebody who holds this view, or maybe something else we'll see. Um, if you've got anything you would like me to critique or to look at or whatever else, send it to megidofilms at gmail.com I'm also on Facebook you can look up my name Paul Flynn Megiddo M-E-G-I-D-D-O or else you can find me on Twitter feel free to send me a message it's from Paul Flynn thank you so much for listening in may God bless you all